And I was thinking a lot, my mom was aging. It was a very long, drawn out, kind of beautiful, very challenging time. And I was thinking a lot, and it, my brother passed away many, many years ago. And so it was uh, me and my husband taking care of my mom. But so my mom and I were, and my dad was also passed away long ago. So I was having this intimacy with her that I hadn't had since I was a kid. And that led me to think a lot about that intimacy and the relationship of a mother and a child. Where's the separation? And you know, that's adolescence is <laughs> like, we must be separate. Mm. But there's also this other thing that I was relearning and allowing myself to re-experience. So I follow my body back to yesterday's body. And I know that many of the cells today are not, we're not there yesterday because cells are turning over and back to my young adult body, back to my teenage body, back to my child body, back to my infant body, back to my newborn body, back to a late stage fetus. Back, 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 back. One body, yes, on some levels, but from another perspective, many, many, many bodies, a cloud of cells, a community of cells evolving and shifting, no body until you go back, as you mentioned, you're a fetus of, you're an embryo of two cells. Then you're an embryo of one cell that formed out of a sperm and an egg. That egg was your mother's body. Where's the separation? There's no moment where you are your mother and you're not your mother. There's, there's no boundary that you can say, I'm on this side or that side. It's all one thing. And so my body is in continuity with my mother's body, who is in continuity with her mother's body, with her mother's body. Back to 10,000 years ago, humans. Back to Homo erectus, our human pre-human forebears. Back to Homo habilis. Back to some small little mammal that survived the, the, the crash of the dinosaurs, back to something that crawled out of the ocean, back to, and no one has found any cellular being on the planet, cell on the planet that we've discovered that has different DNA that indicates it came from a completely different cell of origin from everything else. So far, as far as we know, every cell of any kind of being on the planet derived from some single cell back then. Are we one living being or are we countless numbers of living beings? Both. Yeah. Because there's no separation. Hi, I'm Stephanie Dano and welcome to Unknowingly Connected, a podcast for people open and curious by nature with specific interests in the human potential and the greater good. Twice a month, I interview professionals who have gathered their diverse passions or gifts to be in service of human leadership. You will hear from their journey and their techniques crafted to be within everyone's reach and explained from a scientific, body-mind and spiritual perspective. It's all connected and we might not even know it. Welcome. And yes, I'm back. After quite a few months, uh, I 
put the podcast on hold. Um, few things happened, a relocation, 10 months intense work on the embodiment conference. And, um, and today I wanted to share a conversation that I had actually a few months ago, back in June with Neil Sayus. I wanted to share it because it has a lot of golden nuggets. Um, it's really all about science, body, mind, and spirituality. And to present you, Neil, Neil Thays is MD, a physician scientist at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York. He focused on liver as a liver pathologist, but he's also known in his work of stem cell, stem cell plasticity, and the identification of novel anatomy of the human interstitium. So we will talk about it during the conversation, but just to let you know that interstitium, it's an organ-sized communication network that comprise 20% of the volume of the human body. So that's one thing we've been discussing with Neil, but what we've been talking a lot is about his mix of science and spirituality, the complexity theory and how from this mix of science and spirituality, we can find out somehow why we are one and, and why perspective matters when we talk about nearly anything. I really, really enjoyed the conversation with Neil and, and I hope you will too. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Stephanie. Uh, so before we start, I found a lot of uh, different topics we can talk about today. Uh, but my sense is for all the topic you're interested in, that you might be a multipotentialite. Do you know what that is? Multipotentialite no. is when people are really interested in different topics and oh, yeah. actually good at different topics. <laughs> And the second thing is also that I would say maybe you're an alchemist in the sense that you like linking topics together. Am I right? Okay, okay, that's fine. I'll take that. <laughs> so let's see if I'm if, if people, I'm right. People call me all sorts of things. Oh boy, yeah. People, uh, you know, when pe someone asks me what I do, I say I'm a liver pathologist. Because that's really my core identity and my profession. Um, but, uh, and then outside that, um, I've got, you know, multiple <laughs> identities which overlap. But lately, people have started to call me a philosopher, which is really strange to me because I don't think of myself that way. Um, if you want to call me an alchemist, no one's ever called me that before that I'm aware of. Okay, <laughs> at least metaphorically. All right. So, so let, let's see if I. If, if, but I'm a liver pathologist. Yes, you. You. So you first of all liver pathologist, and what I'm what I'm curious about is actually 
where it started because I've been searching and, and you've been mentioning that you are a scientist geek nerd, <laughs> but where does it come from? Mm -hmm. Where comes yeah. this interest of your interest in science? Oh, that's a really good question. Actually, I have ideas about this. <laughs> um, so, you know, on the one hand, I don't know. I've just always been interested um, in explanations for how the world works. Um, I was always very curious about how the world works and discovered that science uh, had answers to that. And the things I read about science when I was younger also had a sense of adventure to them. And I grew up in the 1960s when the American space program was doing extraordinary things in leaps and bounds. And so there was, and that was sciency. Mm -hmm. So there was this excitement to science um, that I felt as well as that it had answers to, to solve my curiosity. But underneath that, I'm suspicious that, and I think this is true for most scientists, though they largely don't remember it, that they have some sort of innate or early trained um, empathic connection to the world. They feel very close to the world. And that makes what's going on in the world of passionate interest because it's kind of no different to what's going on with yourself um, if you feel that connection to the world. And I think that that often finds its way into the expression of science. But as we get trained, as the years go by, um, you start to turn that into form, forms that you see around you. So I'm going to be a scientist when I grow up. And I'm going to be a scientist because I want to win the Nobel Prize, which was my thing. Um, or because I want to cure cancer because my grandmother died of cancer. Hmm. Or I'm an entrepreneur and I want to become rich using science as a way to move forward. Um, and so all that other stuff gets buried. I did a, um, uh, one of the reasons you're talking to me is out of work that I've done thinking about how to model the universe as a complex adaptive system and how at every level of scale, all the individual pieces, um, while they appear to be things like my body is a thing at the microscopic level, I'm just a collection of cells. There's no Neil's body there. And each cell is only a collection of biomolecules, and each biomolecule is only a collection of atoms, et cetera. And I can present this in a philosophical way. I can present it in a spiritual way, but I can also present it as a very scientific, concrete, mathematical way. And I was invited to give a talk at a major university to a stem cell biology graduate program. And I asked permission to treat it like I was at a yoga retreat where I would give the science, but I would lead them in some guided meditations 
to bring their awareness to their bodies as we explored at every level of scale the nature of their body and where their the boundaries of their body are because as you go down in scale um, at the cellular level you're whatever you've exchanged your microbiome with at the atomic level there's no atom in your body that you didn't breathe eat or drink from the planet so at the atomic level your boundary is the entire planet and we are part of the planet not living on the planet but i didn't tell them i was doing this because of a spiritual thing i told them i wanted to do this because i wanted them to reconnect to that initial intimacy with the world that they experienced that i postulate is the beginning of being a scientist and they were all, <laughs> they were sitting cross-legged and their, their arms were crossed and they were rolling their eyes. By the end, there were some people who were crying and I got, uh, people came up to me afterwards and I got emails later about what a moving experience this was because it did in fact remind them that before they wanted to win a Nobel prize or become rich or cure cancer, there had been something else more profound even underneath it. So that's my hypothesis. <laughs> um, and I think that that's my own experience. Hmm. And does it, does it make sense that then, because I see, of course, you're a physician, but uh, that you turn into a Jewish in, uh, studies? Um, well, so that's, yeah. yeah. What's the connection here? <laughs> well, I never believed there was one. Okay. Um, I grew up in a um, family of Holocaust survivors. Hmm. My father was born in Germany. His parents were killed in the war. He escaped to England on the kinder transport. Um, my mom was in England. Uh, they met there when they were children very briefly at a distance and then they re-encountered each other in adulthood in New York after both of them had moved to America. Um, and here I am. I grew up in a synagogue of German Holocaust survivors. Hmm. And so this sense of responsibility was to my religion was, was really profound, hmm. but it was an exceptionally warm community. I mean, it was, you know, there were kids who didn't want to be doing, going to Sunday school, but, but by and large, um, it didn't chase the kids away. It, it drew them in. And um, so it was an easy community to develop a spiritual practice that was focused on Judaism. And my mom uh, was a very, very deeply spiritual person. And that just suffused as was my father, but in a more Germanic controlled, you know, <laughs> we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to express it. We just know it. <laughs> but for my mom, uh, it was uh, a source um, and suffused with her emotional life. And she was an exceptionally loving woman, uh, loving mother. She was sort of the universal mother to lots of people in the extended family and extended circle of friends in multiple generations. So there was that, I was just, I had that, and I'm a Gemini, so I've got the science thing, and I've got that thing. And conceptually, I did not bring them together. And I was actually challenged about this by an Orthodox Jewish cousin of mine, uh, who was fundamentalist. And 
um, in the Jewish fundamentalist community, they, like in the Christian fundamentalist community, some of them will say, well, the Bible says the world is only five to 6,000 years old, so evolution couldn't happen and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And she gave me a book explaining how you could reconcile these things. And my response wasn't to say that this was bullshit. My response was to say, I don't need to entertain these questions. And I said, I wrote this in a letter when I was 14. I don't need to entertain these questions because these two things are in separate boxes in my brain. And I don't need to explain one in terms of the other. So they weren't related, I thought. <laughs> um, on the Jewish side, the fundamental question I had that arose from that was how could this God figure um, with the attributes I understand from my Jewish practice and from my mother's influence allow the Holocaust to happen? Because I grew up in the midst of such sorrow yeah. and grief. And when I discovered that there was such a thing as mysticism, which also was when I was a teenager, um, Jewish mysticism in particular, I thought, oh, it's possible to obtain the God's eye view experience. And if you could do that, it would explain all this. So, and that also was very conscious. I verbalized that to a friend on the beach one day um, that, oh, I wanted to become a mystic because that would explain you know, essentially that would explain suffering, but I, you know, in, in my world, that could explain the Holocaust. So, but Jewish mysticism wasn't available to non-Orthodox teenage boys, let alone who were going to turn out to be gay um, in America. <laughs> um, and so there was no deep way to pursue that. So it was sort of put on hold for maybe one day in the future somehow. But professionally, I was really seesawing between becoming a rabbi and becoming some kind of scientist. And I ended up majoring in uh, Jewish studies um, on the one hand, um, but I also majored in, I had applied science degree in computers. <laughs> so, and I was pre-med. So I still kept things going both ways. And I didn't decide finally to go to medical school. That's a long story. It has, that has to do more oddly with me being gay than it has to do with either my science impulse or my religious impulse. Um, and no one understood why I was going to medical school. Um, and it, I didn't really, it was a stupid idea. Yeah, here I am. So, you know, unintended consequences are sometimes good. Um, but, um, so, but that split was there all the way into university and into medical school. They only, but sometime in college, a classmate pointed out a book about Zen Buddhism to me called The Three Pillars of Zen which taught in detail how to meditate, but also gave awakening, enlightenment experiences um, as part of the content of the book, people's personal reports. And I thought, that's the kind of experience I'm talking about that would make sense of all this. And Zen offers a way to get there. Um, and since they don't really talk about God, maybe I can do it on the side and it won't interfere with the Jewish stuff. 
And so that led me to becoming a Zen student, which I've been for formally for 33 years now. Um, and, uh, um, you know, the Jewish stuff still goes on. Um, the, the meeting point of the science and this stuff happened when I was doing stem cell work back in the 2000s, 2001, started thinking about, I was studying stem cells um, and stem cell plasticity, how cells from the bone marrow become cells of other organs. It was, my group's work was one of the major reasons George Bush wind up giving his famous uh, address on stem cells to the nation back in 2000. More unintended consequences. Um, and um, it was caught up in the embryonic stem cell debate and stuff. But the research was how cells are moving around in your body. And um, I was sitting in my Zendo because I was responsible for opening the Zendo on Thursday mornings. And no one happened to come that Thursday morning. And I was by myself and uh, and I couldn't get this idea of the thing I was studying is present in my body. And even though I was trying to focus on my breathing, <laughs> I kept coming back to my body is these cells, these cells are moving around. Um, and I had had flashes of this already in the days before walking down the street, I got to a street corner, uh, Fifth Avenue and 20th Street on the east side going west, northeast corner. Um, and the light changed, but I, my mind was in this idea of my body as cells, and I couldn't figure out how to move my leg into walking because it had become a cloud of cells. Oh, boy. <laughs> just a moment, mm -hmm. just a moment, but it was mm -hmm. there. I had another moment of this while sitting there meditating. And during that moment, I looked up and I saw the incense stick turning into smoke on the altar opposite and stick or smoke body or cells and suddenly i was like oh this is what buddhism means by emptiness of inherent existence something being a thing on perspective and view and at that that was the moment where suddenly the science and the spiritual stuff were the same thing I've been accused recently um, when I say that I had kept them separate, that I wanted them separate all these years. I've been accused recently by someone who's considered an enlightened being um, in a public forum. Uh, she said, no, you didn't. <laughs> that on some level, I always wanted them to actually meet up. Um, so now I'm gnawing on that. You know, why did I have to pretend otherwise? Because yeah. I think she's probably right, even though the way I tell the story denies it. Okay. Who knows? But the thing is that there you are now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Putting it together. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I tend to get asked short questions and they turn into very long answers. It's perfect. You know, because I, I you're actually answering the question I had in mind. So <laughs> there you go. It's perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I would like to, to, to talk about, and you mentioned it a little bit, is your idea of complex systems that you usually explain in different, mm -hmm. I've seen in different video, you talk about it. Um, 
Yes. How can you explain it to someone who is really uh, have no idea regarding science and, and what, what we're talking about here? I do it all the time. I've done this for fifth graders. <laughs> Great. My nephew, my nephew, um, when he was in fifth grade, um, wanted me to come to his class to explain it. Hmm. And, um, and I used all the same language I explained, I used for graduate students. And um, it's really not complicated if you have a concept that there's such a thing as cells, molecules, and atoms and vaguely heard of quantum theory, <laughs> yeah. which everyone has because they've all seen science fiction movies where someone mentions quantum stuff. Yeah. It's sort of in the air now. Absolutely. Um, and it's basically what I said. Um, complexity theory, you know, oh, oh, that sounds like it's gonna be something like relativity or quantum theory. And it is in terms of its import, but it's, actually very simple and it's it's describing how we see complex organization in the world that arises out of very simple things so people walking down the street if you go up above and watch the pattern of people walking down the street there's really a lot of organization to it why is it that no one bumps into each other um how is it that you have people going in one direction on one side and people going in the other direction on the other side. How does that self-organization happen? Happen. Um, you look at how humans organize cities. Why is it that we have neighborhoods where you have one particular type of store? Like in New York, we have a flower district um, where if you want to buy flowers, that's the place to go. The city didn't zone a flower district. But it turns out that the way businesses, when a population is large and you have lots of businesses, businesses tend to do better when they aggregate like that. And so the businesses that aggregate do well, the businesses that don't do less well and close, other businesses open where the business is good and suddenly you have a district. It just self-organized. So com complexity describes that. And it doesn't matter what's self-organizing because the mathematics of how it happens is the same whether you're talking about how people organize into neighborhoods, cultures, uh, political parties, um, what have you, or whether a human body is, being, is arising from the organization of cells. Not only your human cells, but the 10 times greater number of bacterial cells that are in and around and on your body, your microbiome. Um, and though, um, you know, the, the body looks like a thing, but then you go to the microscopic level and discover it's not a thing. It's a community of cells. Well, when you go to a cell, is it a thing? Well, if you go down to smaller levels, no, it's just molecules floating in water that self-organize into something that looks like a cell. Um, so, and so what about molecules? Are they a fundamental thing? Well, those are just atoms that have self-organized. Well, are atoms a thing? Well, those are just electrons, neutrons, and protons that have self-organized. Well, are those things? This is where you get into quantum physics. No, there are subatomic particles and further subatomic particles. And when you get to the bottom, 
it's not like infinitely smaller and smaller, also quantum physics. You get to a point where there's nothing smaller. There's simply an energy-rich vacuum that because E equals mc squared, relativity, energy that fills space gives rise to matter. These tiny little things, they may be strings. That's what people mean by string theory. Um, but they might be something else. We're not sure yet. But they are tiny and they emerge out of this energy and interact to become subatomic particles and interact to become atoms into molecules, into cells, into humans, into planets, into galaxies. So the whole thing is just that. And the, the simplest idea is that whatever you think of as being a thing from another perspective is actually just a phenomenon arising from smaller things. And that's Buddhist impermanence. Now, what, what I found interesting when I tried to understood with my own words is, uh, because mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist, but uh, it's something I've, I've seen through different embodiment teachers, is that if we mm -hmm. think, I think everyone knows cells, you know, like it comes from an embryo yeah. and so on. Right. And actually when, when it split, when the cell split, Nobody knows which mm -hmm. cell is going to become a heart or a tissue or an eye. There's a there's mm -hmm. certain, um, um, how can I say that? It's, it's just that it's, it's not that one cell would become something because at the end, they were, at the beginning, there was just mm -hmm. one. <laughs> and then suddenly there's yep. a certain organization so that we become a human <laughs> with a heart, with a lung, with yeah. eyes and so on. So, people, when I when I speak about this stuff, no, 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 no. Uh, lots of people have intuitions exactly like that. They already have the intuitions, and then I'm giving them a framework in which to place that intuition. But there are there are implications to this that uh, you know. That's what I've spent the last ten years sort of unpacking, um, and they're always obvious when I notice them. But until I notice them, you know, they're invisible which is usually the way with discovery. So this thing I referred to with about boundaries earlier, mm. you know, part of spiritual practice in many traditions is learning that we are not separate, um, that we are not as distinct from each other. You're sitting there in your skin bag, as we say in Zen practice, and I'm sitting here confined in my skin bag and there's this gap between us. Um, in this case of thousands of miles, but yeah. <laughs> uh, although it feels like right here. Yeah. Um, so in a lot of spiritual practices, this idea of dissolving the sense of self as a distinct thing from the rest of the world is a central concern and or practice. But the complexity view that I just talked about has touches on that, as I've, I've sort of already indicated. Um, at this level of scale, we are two bodies bounded by our skin. At the microscopic level, we're a community of cells. Well, where is that community of cells? How do you draw a line around it? In fact, we're shedding skin cells all the time. That's what dust in the room is. So your boundary at the cellular level is at least the room in which you live and are shedding bacteria but your 
microbiome, the bacteria without which you could not survive and function as a human, you'd be dead very quickly. Um, every time we shake hands, uh, kiss, uh, hug, we're exchanging bacteria. And so we know now scientifically that if you study people sit, living together in an apartment, a mom, a dad, a child, a grandparent, two dogs and a cat, and test the microbiome of all those people and pets, they all have the same microbiome. So at the cellular level, the boundary around these people actually isn't their skin as separate beings, it's one big organism. And the microbiome, it defines that organism. And the human islands of cells that mistakenly think they're separate are just the landing pads for that, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. So at the cellular level, we are bigger than we think. Um, the molecular level, I breathe out carbon dioxide and the plants breathe it in. The oxygen they breathe out, I breathe in. If you follow my carbon dioxide molecule as my boundary, it, I breathe it out and it goes out there and there's a tree in the courtyard below my office breathing it in. That's my boundary. At the molecular level, the boundary of our existence as humans is the entire ecosystem of the entire planet. At the atomic level, like I said before, every atom in our bodies, we either drank a, oh, you can think of yourself as this person sitting on a rock, or you can think of yourself as atoms of planet Earth that have organized themselves the way people organize themselves moving down the sidewalk into beings that think of themselves as separate. In which case, at the atomic level, we aren't as large as the ecosystem. We are as large as the whole planet itself. And that's the Gaia hypothesis of James Lovelock from, you know, the 1960s, I think. So you can apply that. You know, we sent uh, Curiosity to Mars, which got my, you know, teenage nerdy geek boy uh, soul, <laughs> you know, dancing around. And you can think that that was some clever engineers who have worked for the last few decades to figure out how to send a robot to Mars. But just as true, just as um, real, is that it didn't take a few decades for engineers at NASA to put a robot on Mars. It took three and a half billion years for the Earth to to connect with yeah at the quantum sorry it's yeah. just because i, yeah. I we yeah. lost you it got frozen so that's why it was just the end of your sentence sorry oh okay yeah yeah um at the quantum level this is the weird thing about quantum physics is that the tiniest particles their boundaries are actually the extent of the entire universe um and so our bodies as self-organizing subatomic particles, we are the universe. We are as large as the universe. There are no separations within that. Um, and there you wind up with 
that spiritual notion of we are all one. We aren't individual beings that interact with each other. We are at this level of scale, that's true. But just as true is that the universe is a seamless whole within which it differentiates into things that have the misconception that they're separate. And our spiritual practice is trying, figuring out how to restore that as an experience, not just a concept. What I'm giving you are concepts, hmm. but they can be helpful pointers to the experience of seamless unity of everything. Great. Do you think it has to do, I think you mentioned it one day, um, if we talk about ourselves as body, um, that mm -hmm. um, science point the body a little bit to be viewed as a machine? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, we always deal in metaphors. Um, language, the moment you put something into language, you're talking about a symbolic representation of what is. <laughs> and it never can capture, you know, it can point at it, but it can't capture it. And metaphors are a higher level version of that. And we've had this metaphor of machine for the universe and for human bodies for a couple of centuries. This notion of, you know, from Newtonian mechanics, although Newton himself was in fact an alchemist and wrote more about alchemy than he ever wrote about physics. So what his Newtonian mechanics engendered in the culture is not how he viewed things, we know that. But Newtonian mechanics showed how you can take objects, describe them mathematically, and the mathematics will predict where they go, like clockwork. Hmm. What was the most sophisticated machine people had back then? Clocks. Hmm. And so the world was viewed like working as working like a clock mechanism. And so if you know where everything starts, you should be able to predict where everything goes. And future is absolutely deterministic like a machine. It always works the same way. And that became the dominant cultural model that got further reinforced when people invented things like the steam engine and the cotton gin and industrialization happened because people were inventing machines that could do human work. Hmm. And see, a machine can do what a human can do. What's the difference? The humans are just, just a different kind of machine. Hmm. Um, so they were exploring the similarities between those now our job is to explore why those things are different. But if you look at the language of how we talk about biology, it's so conditioned on that machine-like thing. So we talk about bioengineering um, or bioarchitecture, as though you could build a house, you, you could build a house of cells and you'd have a body. Mm, doesn't really work that way. You cultivate cells together and they give rise to tissues. You don't engineer them, you cultivate them, the way you cultivate a field or an ecosystem. Um, we talk about molecular motors as though they are little tiny machines, but some of the work that fed into what I do actually is how they in fact are not machines, that they do not always do the same thing over and over again the way a machine does. There is randomness always in the system, and that's one of the points of complexity. At every level of scale, whatever you're talking about as self-organizing into something bigger, 
there's always a little randomness in the system. If there's no randomness, then it's a machine and it never changes. And if the world changes around it, it can't adapt, it breaks. Hmm. Um, so machines don't work as a living system. Um, on the other hand, if there's too much randomness, then nothing can get together. You just have random like molecules in a gas. And so you don't have bodies forming, you don't have societies forming, you don't have cells forming. But with a little bit of randomness in this very narrow window, then the way things interact won't be machine-like. There will be other options. And those other options, Stuart Kaufman, one of the fathers of complexity theory, referred to as adjacent possibles. Suddenly, there's a new way of organizing stumbled into by accident because there's a little randomness in the system. Something didn't do what it usually does. It did something a little different. Most of those don't work, but one of them might. And then suddenly the organization starts to change. That's the way biology works. That's the way living systems work. We're not machines. We are unpredictable. Um, and we're adaptive. And it comes from the unpredictability. Mm. You know, when, when you mentioned that, it reminds me, again, because of my field, which is embodiment. One yeah. exercise I did with a um, teacher, Martha Eddy, that comes from New mm -hmm. York, actually. Yeah. And, and she told us uh, to walk as we feel, as we are, mm -hmm. in a yeah. room, and then to go with a, maybe with a group if we feel like, if we feel some similarity. And it was mm -hmm. really interesting to see that even as a feeling level or body level, we could organize each other. It, it was amazing, like as if you build, as you say, a district or city. Yeah. So, yeah. and it comes from yeah. a little bit, as you say, a little bit of randomness. There was some guidance, but then we structure ourselves like naturally. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -mm. yeah. That's exactly it. And so complexity theory would say, there are ways in which you interact that are governed by rules. And that's a whole other thing, what kind of rules and, and what, you know, what their nature is. Um, and then there's this randomness. So the walking down the street thing, why is it that people walk up one way and down the other way? Well, I remember in kindergarten being taught to walk down the hallway in lines and you were taught this is their way of controlling you as little children. You're taught in America to walk up on the right and down on the left so that people aren't walking into each other. We had to learn that. But after you're four years old, you never have to think about that again. It just, your natural inclination is to walk on the right or in Britain to walk on the left. And, so that's a rule, yeah. but, but we're not thinking about it. We're not processing rules in our head as we're walking down the street. We're just doing it. It's by instinct. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the places where the intuition comes in. And intuition is exploring adjacent possibles. Mm -hmm. And you have an input that you weren't expecting, but you're sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so a person walking down the street in there with their, earphones in their head and they're on their phone, they've cut off the sensory input. Those are the ones that are bumping into people. Yeah. They're mucking up the flow because they've cut themselves off from interaction. Hmm. 
the subtle interactions that happen because of eye contact um, or the sense that someone's coming up on the side or the, you know, seeing someone up ahead who that person looks crazy. I should like go this way yeah. or there's someone jogging. I better get it. And you watch the, the people make way for the bicyclist who's on the sidewalk in an organized fashion, but no one planned it. Um, and that's the thing. She was opening up for you the idea that you could self-organize without a plan from the top. Absolutely. It's a bottom-up thing. And that's the way the world works. You know, and that's an implication for, you know, fundamentalist arguments that against evolution, because there's still people that argue this, God help us, um, that the appearance of design implies a designer. Well, that's the remarkable thing. It doesn't. Design happens from the bottom up, not from the top down. Ant colonies are incredibly well organized. There's no ant planning the whole thing. The queen ants just serves a reproductive function. <laughs> there's, you know, there's no planning. Humans, you could say, well, we put traffic lights in, we trained us. Mm, that's the illusion. We're not in control from the top down like we think we are. And there's so many implications in nowadays, right? With what's happening. <laughs> With all the regulation and rules and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Great. Um, oh, I have so many things, I, I don't know where to start. Uh, <laughs> I think I would say, um, yeah. Maybe the interstitial? If we can talk about it a little bit. Yeah, sure. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. It's another uh, favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to see if I understood it well. Again, because I'm not a scientist, and let's see if my short brain can get it. Mm -hmm. Is it um, a, a fluid compartment that is just before the just under the fascia, or am I wrong? <laughs> yes, you're wrong. There we go. <laughs> um, again, but you're close. Um, and the confusion comes from words again. The things that my group talked about as interstitium and interstitial spaces were recognized immediately by people in the fascia world as the things they call fascia. Got it. So they're the same thing, except they're not because they're slightly different perspectives of the same thing. But this part of our bodies doesn't walk around with a name tag. It's just what it is. It's up to us to figure out what's the most useful way to name it that allows us to explore it together with a common language. Mm. Um, the way I would explain it is that, because also nobody has, nobody had and nobody has the complete picture of this structure any more than they have the complete picture of the whole body but this part of it is particularly um encountered in very different ways in different cultures of science and biology and medicine and healing the way i explored it um showed that things that were layers of the body that we think of as dense connective tissue, dense collagen, which anatomists, I have read 
um, uh, editorials on our publication who said that this extracellular collagen connective tissue that we're talking about is sort of merely the glue in between. Hmm. Now, why would you say that about a biological thing? It's only the glue. Because you're thinking of the body as a machine yeah. with parts that need to be connected to each other. And they identify this stuff as the connection. So it is merely the glue. And beneath study <laughs> is the implication. What the fascia people call fascia are the connective tissue layers in and around and through organs in the body. And, um, and depending on which fascia person you are, you you define that very broadly or very specifically. In my allopathic culture of medicine, which is what we think of as traditional Western medicine, um, fascia is pretty much defined as the connective tissue in and around the muscles and the bones. Mm -hmm. Little system. In osteopathy, osteopathic medicine, another parallel Western tradition that overlaps with allopathic medicine, but also differs significantly. They view the connective tissue and the fascia, therefore, in a much wider range of, of things. Um, so the covering of organs, the tissues around arteries, veins, nerves, um, the fibrous coverings of the brain and central nervous system. And then there's a whole fascia world, as I said, that has looked at this critically and said it's even more than that. But there were two layers that none of them included in uh, their definitions. The dermis, the second layer of the skin, mm -hmm. and the fibrous layer within the visceral organs called the submucosa. Now, all of these, when you look at them under the microscope, look like dense layers of collagen. They're just collagen bundles stacked up. And there are arteries and veins and nerves that are packed in there. Um, but it looks like dense collagen. Mysteriously to me <laughs> and to a lot of people, some traditions like in osteopathy, uh, people who do rolfing, yeah. cranial sacral work have said that there's fluid in there and i have a rolfer cranial sacral uh healer of mine who i depend on um who knows bodies like nobody else i know and she would say well i'm manipulating the fluid in your fascia and i'd go this is just something we have to agree to disagree on because when i look under the microscope and at the fascia there is no fluid there. Um, what you do see occasionally are cracks in the tissue. Um, and we know that's artifact because collagen is so stiff when you cut it very, very, very thin to make a microscope slide, uh, the tissue cracks. And so you just learn to look past that. Then we did some in vivo microscopy. We looked with a microscope that could look at living human tissues at one of those layers, the dermis and the submucosa of the bile ducts of the liver. Liver, that's how I got involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and discovered in the living tissue, these layers are not dense collagen. They're an open lattice work of collagen bundles 
supporting a fluid-filled space. So we saw this fluid. And so we were talking about the space. And so we called it the interstitial space because uh, the fluid we were able to demonstrate flows into the lymphatics and the interstitium, the interstitial spaces, the interstitial fluid by definition is pre-lymphatic. So we could say this is interstitial space. The people in the fascia world say this is fascia because they're looking at the connective tissue, the collagen bundles. Mm. Um, so they're coming at it from that standpoint. We're coming at it from the fluid standpoint. But which is it? Is it the spaces or is it the collagen? It's both. So our names, our words are a problem. The reason we didn't see it in the, uh, under the microscope so that allopathic medicine could say definitively there is no fluid here is that when you take tissue out of the body, it dehydrates. The fluid leaves, the bundles collapse into what looks like a dense layer of collagen. And then when you make a slide and we see these little cracks that we said were because of it being stiff, those are the remnants of the pre-existing spaces. What we thought was artifact turns out to be a remnant of, a re of the real. Mm -hmm. And the real dense wall of collagen that we thought was real turns out to be an artifact of dehydration. So we had the anatomy wrong. We had the microscopic anatomy and when you look at any fiber connective tissue of the body, it turns out to be collagen bundles separated by fluid filled spaces. Mm. There's many other things we're figuring out about it, but that's the essential. Mm. And so this osteopathic view, this holistic view of the fascia, oh, but the fascia world never talked about dermis or submucosa. So that was a new thing we added in. And we confirmed from our ignorant, limited perspective, because we had this allopathic lens, we confirmed what they'd been saying all along, but extended it to include these other tissues. And now what you see is we've got this extended network of fluid-filled spaces and collagen layers lined by very interesting cell types that have all sorts of physiologic properties throughout the body. People who estimate the relative amount, the amount of fluid in different compartments of the body, say that the cardiovascular system has about 7% of the fluid volume of the body. Cells have a little more than half of the fluid content of your body. Um, cerebrospinal fluid, much less. Lymphatics, much less. Interstitial fluid, somewhere between 20 and 25%. So that means this space is 20 to 25% of the volume of the body, fluid volume of the body. It's huge. It is. <laughs> so we didn't see it. Yeah, that's amazing. So that, that's why I guess you, when talking about uh, Eastern medicine, you make the connection with acupuncture, right? And that yeah, one, one possible connection. Yeah. yeah, one possible connection. Yeah. yeah. And, and one thing I found, I'm um, going to be honest, is, is that I look at a video of someone criticizing the interstitium and uh, um, acupuncture and so on. And what I find interesting is what we talked about before is when you look at the body as a machine, 
my take is everything that is more Eastern medicine, like acupuncture and so on, uh, that's where you need, uh, let's say, an agreement when you work on someone's body. That mm -hmm. maybe Western medicine is a little bit more pushy, like you take a yeah. pill or you do something and you force the body to do something. Yeah. While in uh, Eastern medicine or anything we I've seen in body work, you need the agreement of the person or the body of the person to be willing to work. So maybe that's why, because the person was saying like, oh, I did a few sessions of acupuncture, it didn't work. But if you telling your body not to, <laughs> not to be participative, it just doesn't work, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. There's an anti-placebo. <laughs> <laughs> if you're given a pill and you're told it's medicine and you feel better, and then it turns out it's not medicine, we call that the placebo effect. Yeah. Um, though it's still an effect. <laughs> um, but there can be the reverse. You tell someone, give them a pill and tell them it's poison and they'll feel terrible. Yeah. Then that's a negative placebo, but <laughs> um, we would need a different word for it. But well, poison, yeah. um, pseudo poison. Yeah, so if someone says, oh, acupuncture is not gonna work, well, shocking, because we know that the belief that something might or might not work is essential to whether it does work or not. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. And, and that's and, what I've, yeah, sorry. That, that's what I've seen. I mean, I've done a little bit of body work and uh, sometimes body workers have some tricks to, to let your body like relax and work on it. But still, you, need, you somehow need the agreement of the person or the body to be willing to, yeah. to do what is needed. And then there's, there's this idea of, you know, talking about it this way, it's still a body and a separate body and they have to agree. But at the electromagnetic level, there's not two bodies. No. There's two electromagnetic fields. So for example, if you take a heart and you put it in an electromagnetic field, it will entrain to the heart, it's beating, meaning the beats will come in time with the pulsing of the electromagnetic field. Because hearts are electric, they generate magnetic fields. Hearts are so sensitive to magnetic fields that they can sense the magnetic field of another heart out to a distance of about 15 feet. So when you draw in close to someone, your two hearts are in training to each other. What happens when you spend a lifetime sleeping next to somebody? And then one of them dies and the other one dies soon after of yeah. a broken heart. Yeah. But in a therapeutic situation, when you're doing body work of all kinds, but particularly when we speak about energy work, um, you don't have two separate fields that are impacting on each other. You have one field within which each person is interacting, not a machine, a cultivation of something. Yeah, that's ah, amazing. <laughs> um, 
But it's, do you see how trivially easy it is to think this way? Absolutely. And, and that's what I find really interesting in your work is, is for people to realize that everything depends on the lens you're putting. So yeah. It's, and, and that's why, like, if you don't, let's say, if you don't talk from the same, same lens of vision, you can't talk, we, we can't have a conversation, basically. Right. Um, and this makes that visible that, um, you know, and readily accessible that there, oh, perspective makes a difference. And we have to make sure we are coming from the same perspective. And if we're not, then they complement each other in really interesting ways. And you discover new things that way. But this also provides a language that allows you to talk across cultures of experience and intuition and practice. Um, and all it takes is for people to get in the habit of going, this is how I interpret it at the everyday level of scale. What if I look at it from a different level? Hmm. And, and when I talked earlier about how um, the last decade plus, 15 years, I suppose, of finding new ways to apply this, it's simply that. I'm thinking about something and I choose to look at it from a different level. One of my favorites is this notion of continuity. And I was thinking a lot, my mom was aging. It was a very long, drawn out, kind of beautiful, very challenging time. And I was thinking a lot, and it, my brother passed away many, many years ago. And so it was uh, me and my husband taking care of my mom. But so my mom and I were. And my dad was also passed away long ago. So I was having this intimacy with her that I hadn't had since I was a kid. And that led me to think a lot about that intimacy and the relationship of a mother and a child. Where's the separation? And, you know, that's adolescence. <laughs> it's like, we must be separate. Mm. But there's also this other thing that I was relearning and allowing myself to re-experience. So I follow my body back to yesterday's body. And I know that many of the cells today are not, we're not there yesterday because cells are turning over. And back to my young adult body, back to my teenage body, back to my child body, back to my infant body, back to my newborn body, back to a late stage fetus. Back, 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 back. One body, Yes, on some levels, but from another perspective, many, many, many bodies, a cloud of cells, a community of cells evolving and shifting, no body. Until you go back, as you mentioned, you're a fetus of, you're an embryo of two cells. Then you're an embryo of one cell that formed out of a sperm and an egg. That egg was your mother's body. Where's the separation? There's no moment where you are your mother and you're not your mother. There's, there's no boundary that you can say, I'm on this side or that side. It's all one thing. And so my body is in continuity with my mother's body, who is in continuity with her mother's body, with her mother's body. Back to 10,000 years ago, humans. Back to Homo erectus, our human pre-human forebears, back to Homo habilis, back to some small little mammal 
that survived the, the, the crash of the dinosaurs, back to something that crawled out of the ocean, back to, and no one has found any cellular being on the planet, cell on the planet that we've discovered that has different DNA that indicates it came from a completely different cell of origin from everything else. So far, as far as we know, every cell of any kind of being on the planet derived from some single cell back then. Are we one living being or are we countless numbers of living beings? Both. Yeah. Because there's no separation. There's no point in time. Before we were talking about boundaries in space. Boundaries in time, the same thing. And so, you know, what's dying? We shed skin cells all the time. We don't mourn those lost skin cells. It's what happens. It's being part of a living thing that is a planet. Hmm. There are some flowers. This is apropos to the current moment, I suppose. Mass extinction events are a theme. <laughs> yeah. um, there are some flowers whose flowers form because the bud is a tight ball of cells. And then waves of programmed cell death move out, destroying cells, cells dying off in between living preserved layers of cells. And those become the petals. That's interesting. You know, our Western culture that we prize in so many ways has the form it has because what, a quarter of the population of Europe died off in the bubonic plagues and that completely changed the way society self-organized? And if we hadn't had a bubonic plague, we'd have a very different culture. Unpredictably so, maybe better, maybe worse. So things like tragedy and loss are also perspective dependent. Um, Someone asked me, the first time I spoke about this publicly was at my Zen place, actually. It was about 15 years ago. It was the, it's a safe place for me to put out some of my crazy ideas, and they are fiercely smart people <laughs> from all sorts of backgrounds, so that, you know, you, it's challenging. Yeah. And one woman almost stopped me. She asked um, about good and evil. And I thought, okay, let's try the perspective thing. If you have an iron atom that's vibrating at a certain speed, the metal and all the atoms in that iron are vibrating at that particular very fast speed, you will have iron that is red hot. Is that good or evil? It's just iron that's red hot, that's it. But is it a piece of a sculpture in wrought iron being made by an artist? Or is it a piece of shrapnel of a suicide bomber? Good and evil is scale dependent. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting in the Jewish tradition, you look at the Hebrew Bible and it says that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Is what is the metaphor here that they learned to distinguish? And at the same time, they learned they were naked because now they saw themselves as separate beings. Mm. Their perspective had shifted from the universal seamlessness in which there is no good and evil. There's just what is. 
And there is no me and you to be ashamed in front of, or a God to be ashamed of, ashamed in front of, because it's all just what is. But in that moment you say things are separate, then there's good and evil. Then there's me and you and God over there. And you lose your paradise. Absolutely. Hmm. At least you came back thinking about it, I guess. <laughs> the move from one view to the other. Absolutely. That's to develop that flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a last question for you. And okay. I hope we're going to see. Um, is, because you, you talk about it, is, is previously, is your synesthesia? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Another big topic. Another thing. <laughs> yeah. the, the one thing is, I'm going to tell you, I got really curious with uh, synesthesia when I saw a documentary many years ago. Um, mm -hmm. That person, I need to find the name again. It was uh, Daniel Tamet. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's a um, person that has discovered he has synesthesia, but also he has what is called the Savan syndrome. Mm -hmm. So basically, he can learn like ten languages, and and right. but yeah. but the thing is, any any what is he has some autistic trait, but by chance he's able to explain what's going on in his head. Mm -hmm. The thing I'm I'm curious about is, so so I know you have a synesthesia with time, right? Yeah, time and uh, space. Time and space. Yeah. Where where I'm curious about is that many people who have special trait, let's say maybe a lot of intuition or synesthesia, uh, usually have something in the past. So that person, for instance, had a lot of uh, epileptic seizures. Oh, no, some... that's not true. Okay. That's not true. No, uh, synesthesia is, you know, it's a very high percentage of the population, actually, I think it's like 7%. Yeah. Um, they almost, they very rarely um, no. have had that kind I mean it happens yeah um maybe it happens a bit more than the general population that there is a pre-existing thing but most people it's just the way their minds slash brains work yeah um they're they're not acquired per se they're it's an innate sort of thing hmm. um, that's my understanding of it. okay what what I'm curious um because it as you say it doesn't have to be yeah. is do you think it's something that you can develop? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so there's a lot of documentation of acquiring synesthesia. Um, uh, a famous one, um, because there was a book written about it, um, of a guy named Jason Paget and co-written with a friend of mine, Maureen Seberg, who's a yeah. multiple synesthete um and uh, uh a journalist and she helped him write the book about what happened when he was mugged and kicked in the head developed a concussion and when he came out the other side he was profoundly synesthetic and experiences the world in terms of its fractal geometries and he was an average high school student working in uh, who wound up working as an adult in a futon shop um, and now he's a mathematical genius because he got kicked in the head. Yeah. So yes, you can develop them. Um, 
there are people who have synesthesias during drug experiences. That's what I was thinking about, yes. Or, or yeah. when you have shamanic experience and you have ayahuasca, this kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, mm. profound experiences that way. They don't usually persist beyond the drug experience. Yeah. But, but on occasion, there are reports where they do. Um, working with another friend of mine, Bill Bichelle, who's an anthropologist uh, and looks for science and culture interactions, um, pointed to the fact that there are lots of different texts in different cultures where contemplative practice of one kind or another leads to synesthesias. And those tend to be either in the moment, but also tend to be more likely to be extended. Um, so I, I, Maureen is the one who identified that I have a synesthesia. I wasn't aware of it. I just thought, you know, the way I think when I, if you tell me Tuesday at 2 p.m., that conjures a location in the imaginary space in my head of where things are positioned. Um, it's hard for me to describe it. I, it's sort of like wheels and wheels and wheels and they rotate to line up to give you minute hour day week month year century millennium whatever um and if i talk about it i get nauseous mm. um i think it's because it, it's a spatial motion yeah. that's the synesthesia so i get a little car sick because <laughs> 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 just talking like this whenever i talk yeah. about it i start to feel a little nauseating um but I just thought that's how, and Maureen exploring me, she said I, I'm, she has great instinct for picking out synesthetes, people who have synesthesias. And she took me through all of them. You know, it was like, no, I don't have that. No, you know, colors don't have flavors. Music doesn't have shapes. All the fun stuff that you think like, <laughs> wow, that would be great. Yeah. Tuesday <laughs> purple, ooh, you know. <laughs> and then she got to, she asked me about, um, time and she said well does time have location and i said what do you mean and she said well if i say i don't remember what she said but you know let's say 2 p.m does that have a location oh sure it's called go. time sequence synesthesia and i was like that's not synesthesia and she said, yes it is because it's all i've ever known and i can't turn it off so i don't know what the alternative is and and uh, somehow for me i make the link with your interest and sometimes going back in time and trying to discover where we come yeah. from. She, she has made that observation too. And, um, and I, I, you know, I've also got a shamanic practice thing going on and it's been identified there too, that um, my way of thinking about space and time as not separate, allows a certain kind of imagination and flu a fluidity of imagination so that it is instinctively natural to me to play that sort of game mm -hmm. of changing perspective. Mm -hmm. um, it set me up to be able to do that easily, whereas someone else might not instinctively go there. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for me not to go there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think I, 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 I can't draw the line, but, but the, you know, Maureen insists, and I think she's probably correct, that um, I can do what I do in part because of that. Yeah. But it's also in part because of who my parents were. It's also in part because of 
33 years of meditative practice. It's also, you know, I went to medical school, yeah. um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and your interest also, well, in, in Jewish mysticism and, yeah. and study that usually the idea is where are we coming from, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. That's the central question in Jewish mysticism is where, how was the world created and how was it created in each present moment? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Absolutely. And, um, and actually the first time I ever did Zoom, actually it was Skype. The first mm -hmm. time I ever did Skype, um, there's this very important, very famous uh, mystical rabbi, originally from the hyper-Orthodox end, but sort of was the founder and guardian angel of the Jewish New Age, um, uh, Jewish renewal movement okay. uh, in the 70s, named um, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi. And I thought, I need to see, I can see how this complexity thing lines up with Buddhism, um, I need to see how it lines up with Jewish mysticism. And so I wrote him an email and he said, well, for the, and he was 80 at the time, 81. Um, he died a few years later, but he said, um, this isn't for email conversation. We need to Skype. And I wrote back and said, what's Skype? <laughs> so this 80 plus year old Jewish mystic <laughs> introduced me to Skype. And we had this amazing conversation where he, um, just drew it all out for me and, and showed me exactly this, that what my work is also talking about is how the world creates itself in every moment um, and what that means from in a Jewish mystical context. There are also direct parallels of language and metaphor um, and structure. Mm. So mm. It's all, all connected. <laughs> yeah. Coming back around. Back around. Um, before we finish, um, I would like to ask you, it, it's a big question, but let's say if, if you have something in mind. What is your wish or your intention with all the work and studies you do? Oh. That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Um. how grandiose do I allow myself to be <laughs> in a public forum? You know, my initial question was, how do I relieve suffering that's still, you know, including my own? Um, I've done a lot of psychoanalysis. I've been on a lot of antidepressants. I've done a lot of therapy. Um, I've done a lot of work on myself. I've done a lot of Zen practice. I'm generally pretty happy. Am I free of suffering? No. Um, no one is. It's the nature of existence. Um, so can this help? Can this help me and help other people? That's not so grandiose. Um, the bodhisattva ideal of my traditional Zen practice. But the, um, the grandiose part is that our world is in a transition between different eras clearly you know and that doesn't have to be something in terms of like the end of the kali yuga or is it the beginning of the kali yuga i don't know you know some fast millennial whatever it's simply that after 
a pandemic with economic implications that's global of the kind we have, our world two years from now will not be the world it would have been had this not have happened. I think it's potentiated what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and so if that leads to that, further extraordinary epical change, you know, finally a shift in 400 years of really troubled American history. Do we go onto a new path finally, maybe? Um, or more globally, you know, mass extinction events coming, <laughs> uh, global warming, uh, climate change. If I can put some ideas out there that become part of a useful part of common understanding of the way the world works, can that potentially have some influence on a right view as we rebuild whatever comes next? And if my ideas can participate in tilting things towards a right view, again, a Buddhist phrase, um, you know, that's a fairly grandiose, somewhat narcissistic ambition, but there it is. Great. Well, thank you very much for your reply and, and to participate in, uh, in our conversation. So before, before, before we finish, I still have a small, a really small gift for you. Okay. <laughs> is I have a message from someone that I think you don't know, but let's say if we, if we can, if I can share it for you. Okay. Hello, Neil. When Stephanie says there's some synchronicity in our paths crossing, I trust her wisdom. And I give you my greetings and my thanks for your work. I understand we have much in common from a passion for science, to our practice of Zen, to how we get to the fundamentals of things as I explore resonance and you explore creativity, complementarity, recursion, principles of consciousness. I look forward to our paths crossing for real one day and wish you all the best in your work and in the ways that it can help people. So this is a message from Ginny Whitelow that was in episode two in the uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. So Ginny actually has actually many things in common with you. So she's a Zen priest and, uh, and she has a background in physics, but also in philosophy. And now she's mm -hmm. publishing a work about resonance. So all the connection we have between Actually, what you said, matter and uh, connections and uh, fields mm -hmm. and so on. So if you're up for it. Oh, sure. Of course I'm up for it. This is, <laughs> this is where the fun stuff happens. You meet new people and they take you new places. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Including this. So Absolutely. Thank <laughs> so thank you very much, Neil, for your time. Thank you for your time. Thank you, and looking forward to, to see you soon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and uh, don't forget to subscribe for the next one or to watch the previous episode with uh, Bruce Cryer, Ginny uh, Whitelow, uh, the brothers Coran, and many, many will come. 
So um, looking forward to, to see you on the next episode. And don't forget, it's all connected and you might not even know it.